welcome to another Meet the Author. So Gary, who do we have today? Well, tomorrow, I'm really happy and delighted that we have Bob Edwards here. Hi, Bob. And Bob's going to talk about his book, Bob's Guide to Operational Learning, How to Think Like a Human and Organizational Performance, Pop Coach. So, Bob, thank you for joining us. Unfortunately, your co-author, Andrea Baker, can't make it today. She's tied up in this thing called travel, and I know that she sends her regrets. But let's dive right into your book. And I noticed that it was released in 2020. So I had a chance to reflect on it and see how it's going. And, but, but let me ask you, what made you decide to write this book? Uh, Todd Compton told me I needed to. <laughs> you know, we, we have a little consortium of us that work together, Todd and me and Andy and Mark Essen. And Todd's like, Bob, you need to write a book on this work that you guys are doing with operational learning. Learning teams is a part of it. But um, he, yeah, so he kicked me in motion and uh, it took Andy and I, by the way, without Andy, this book would have never happened. So we, we, it's a play on words, right? Where it says a little help and then slashes out a lot of help from Andrea Baker. So it was originally a book I was writing and Andy said, Bob, you want some help? I'm like, Andy, I'll never get this figured out. And so she jumped on board and, and really just did a fantastic job of pulling this book together. And I, so I wrote a bunch of stories and then she pulled the narrative all together. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. So Todd gave me a lot of gave me a lot of grief about it. He's like, Bob, it's taking too long to write this book. I'm like, Todd, I have 12 kids. Andy had one at the time. Give me a minute. We're working on it, right? <laughs> so, but we got it. It was it was a uh, it was a real um, what do you call it? labor of love because what we really wanted to do with the book uh, is is just to give some help for people that are on this journey because this is a it's not as easy as it sounds, right? Changing from sort of the old way of looking at things to this newer view. And, um, and so we thought, well, we've been doing this for almost 10 years. Let's just share the stuff that we've seen that, that might help people a bit. So our whole goal was to just, you know, help people out with it. Right. right. Well, I'm pretty sure that those that on the show and on, on live stream are familiar with hop theory. But, but just in case, Bob, what would you say in today's TLDR? You know, it, it used to be the elevator speech, but now it's too long, didn't read. So what is HOP? Um, well, so it's a derivative from human performance, which has been around a long time, which, you know, kind of came from the, I guess, the nuke industry and, you know, Department of Energy. But we in industry about 2012, 2013 picked up on this, you know, Todd and Tony Machar and some of these guys were talking about this thing called human and organizational performance. And so if you think about it, it's um, it's kind of three big bodies of knowledge pulled together. It's, it's a behavioral psychology, not that we're trying to change behavior, but we're trying to understand behavior. And so we can build systems, systems thinking, that's another big part of this, right? Systems thinking and, um, and then complexity science. So it is a lot more too, but you know, there's a lot of these, those are three big bodies, which I know are all like lifetimes of learning, but what we try to do, and I'm just an old engineer that, you know, trying to help make some of this stuff practical, trying to pull this stuff together to figure out ways to understand work better and then also to make work better. Ah, okay. Right. Well, your book, your guidebook, is divided into three parts and 10 chapters. In part one, I, I really enjoyed reading about your own, your own personal transformation. Uh, what did you go through changing from Possum Bob, the safety yeah. guy, to today's hop coach? Well, so actually, you know, we, I had, I'm not a safety guy. I worked in safety because I worked for, for General Electric, and they, they let me do several different jobs. I was there 16 years. I was a maintenance manager. I was a design engineer, but I ended up in safety for, I think, maybe five years. And Gary, I was doing, I was being as creative as I could with all the sort of traditional stuff, but we just couldn't seem to really get a, we just couldn't make ourselves much better. And uh, so, so. Uh, Lisa Brooks will always love her for introducing me to Todd Conklin. Lisa Brooks was at corporate in GE, and uh, we were at our session E, which is a big annual um, EHS review in GE. And Lisa said, she said to me and my plant manager, would you guys like to look at something differently? It's called human and organizational performance. So she told us a bit about it. It wasn't super well developed at that point. I mean, Todd and those guys have been kind of kicking this stuff out there a bit. But we, we, we said, yeah, we're interested. And my site was one of the early sites in, in General Electric to actually give this a go. And as we started to give it a go, I realized, wow, there's a lot of stuff I can do with this. 
because I'm an old engineer and an old maintenance manager and an old design guy, I'm like, man, we got to bring all this stuff together because we got to build better stuff too. We're getting better at understanding how work gets done and quit blaming the humans, the workers so much and move more towards a, a deeper understanding. So yeah, but it was hard for me at first because I was sort of trained in the old safety cop approach. And they actually had a little thing in my factory when I would walk out in the plant on the radio, they'd say, uh, Fox in the hen house, right? I mean, look out, it comes a safety guy. And I actually had kind of been known for writing people up and sending people home. And even, I mean, people sometimes, Gary would say, Bob, I promise you I wasn't trying to break your rule. I'm, I'm sorry, I gotta be you know, firm, fair, and consistent. And, um, and then at one time I walked into the tool crib and uh, Janet was back there and she, told, she was just cracking up. I'm like, what's so funny? She said, you know, they have a thing that they say whenever you come out here. I'm like, I know, I got a radio. Um, but I wasn't on their channel. And so somebody couldn't remember the phrase. And so they're like, uh, uh, a possum in the hen house. And so I became possum Bob. So that's how that happened, right? But when I met Todd and I got, I got sort of um, exposed to this new way of thinking, um, actually one of my colleagues there, one of my fellow managers at that site said, Bob, you're not gonna do well with this because I was such a, such a policeman about it. But when I saw this, I'm like, oh my word, I've been doing this wrong. And it was a transformational thing for me, Gary. And it, it, it took me a little bit, but not long before I'm like, wow, this is so much healthier. This is such a better way of dealing with stuff rather than trying to punish our way to operational excellence. Actually, I don't think anybody's done that. I don't think anybody's successfully punished the way to operational excellence. Yeah, that's a good point here. I know that you've been working with Todd on the hot principles. Uh, we know that Todd did write a book about it. But over time, yep. you've massaged with Andy and others kind of mm. what the principles are. So maybe just quickly, can you say, I know these are not you know, set in cement and they are, right. they are evolving and changing, but what, what are these principles? Yeah, so we started with basically the human performance principles and we used those for a bit. And then the more that Todd and Andy and I talked about this stuff, we're like, okay, if things are changing. Like we're, we're realizing different things and we're, we're learning stuff. And and some of these don't exactly align with what we're doing with Hop. And so we begin to, to re rewrite them. And there's, there's been different iterations of it. So we try to make them more like a mantra, Gary, to where they're easy to remember, but there's so much depth behind each one of these. And, and we, in the book, you know, we actually give a little bit of a, you know, deeper dive look at, at these five principles. But the first one is the fact that people make mistakes or people aren't perfect. Sometimes people use error as normal. We use that for a while. And so they're none, like you said, these aren't set in cement. These are, these are fluid and they move with us. But the first one being people make mistakes. And by the way, the system's not perfect. The procedures aren't perfect and neither are the humans. And so we say, okay, when things happen, our next one is, is that blame doesn't fix it, right? Blame fixes nothing. And you can say it different ways. Blame is a waste of energy. Blame mass system problems for, for error. Pro I mean, sorry, human problems. We'll, we'll call it a human problem. And really it was a system problem. And so blame fixes nothing is a the second one that really kind of seemed to make sense to us. And then, then we've got to get past this blame thing, but we, we need to understand the context, like well, how does work really get done? So we say context is everything or context drives behavior, right? The context of work, meaning everything from the production pressure to the metrics, to the tools we have, to the people we have or don't have, all of that context drives our behavior. So we don't say try to change behavior. We say, like James Reason said many years ago, you cannot change the human condition, but you can change the conditions under which humans work. So let's work on that, right. which then leads us to the learning and improving, which is all this operational learning stuff. We say it's vital because we believe it's that important. And some of the complexity guys teach us, right? In complex systems, learning is one of your most powerful tools. And we use the Kinevin framework, which you're very familiar with, a lot because it helps sort of people understand the difference between ordered systems and complexity. And then our last one is this notion of, you know, leaders' response matters. Everybody's response actually matters, but it starts with leadership. And right. if we could, if, you know, Todd says this all the time, you can blame and punish or you can learn and improve, but you can't do both. They vector in opposite directions. It doesn't mean there are times that we have to use HR disciplinary action, but that does not build more accountability. That actually is, gives us a chance to uh, take care of hiring mistakes, right? <laughs> Someone we shouldn't have hired. But that's actually a pretty low percentage. Most of the time people come to work, they try to do a good job. True, true. Well, learning is I a word that Oh, oh hi, Gary. I had a question about that. So I'm going to kind of pop in here. Um, okay. So I like I like what you're saying. 
um, Bob, um, about the uh, learning is a power, power tool. You know, it's a very powerful tool and context is everything. I did want you to drill a little bit deeper in the leader's response area. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is um, many times in my experience in the workplace, it's actually um, that, that middle management level and supervisor level who is running off and doing the blaming first and starting that whole uh, wheel turning, right? So it may not even be um, where we are right now, the, the safety professional, they may be struggling with a different dynamic in the workplace. What's your advice and your recommendations to help with those type of things? Well, I think, I think even for those that are struggling with, uh, you know, the, the sort of desire or need to, they feel like we've got to punish people for these things that they're messing up. Um, it, a lot of it's driven from uh, like metrics, like my numbers aren't going the way I want, that I'm, I'm trying desperately to make something different happen. Uh, some of it comes from just the way we've trained. I mean, we are not trained, some of our leadership and how to get a more open dialogue. We talk about, you know, a safe place to talk. I guess a technical term might be psychological safety, but it's a, I need to be able to tell you the truth about what really goes on, but I can't tell you the truth if I'm afraid you're going to fire me. I mean, that's just human. That's a part of the human behavior, right? And so if I think I might get either written up or fired or, or publicly humiliated, like this toolbox talk of shame, right? Then I'm probably not going to tell you what's really going on. So we have to have leadership on board with this. Um, and we have to have them really help us set the stage for uh, an open dialogue. And my plant manager, Scott Oswald, we call him Scott O. He was amazing at this. Um, he would come into... Not that he didn't struggle, we all struggle, but he would come into learning teams even and kick them off for me and say, hey, we had that quality escape out there or a safety event or whatever it was. And he'd say, I know nobody meant for that to happen. And I want you all to know on this learning team, we are not looking to punish anybody. We are looking to learn. We need to learn. And he would say this, I don't care how ugly the stories are. He called them the blue line stories, you know, from Black Line, Blue Line. He said, tell me the real stories and help me make it better. So we don't just walk away from it and say, all right, well, I told you. No, we actually want to make it better. And he would set that expectation that he wanted them to be open and honest. And he also wanted them to help him make it better. But leaders who can't get on board with that, well, we can't really do good operational learning because people figure out pretty quickly. If I tell you the truth on how we actually got that work done, somebody's getting written up. Well, I'm not talking. So that, that's part of the reason we say leadership, leadership's response matters. And matters a lot because we can't really do this without leadership being on board. All right. You did mention about the blue line, the black line. And if you look in the uh, in my background, I've got a little diagram there, Bob. And maybe you can talk to me about the diagram and also what do, what do we mean by operational learning? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. So we actually originally used the, uh, the I would call it the drift model. It would show a black line, which is the plan. It would show a line that drifted away, which is how work got done. It would show a hazard line creeping up to that line. And when they intersected, you had a bad event. And we use that for a while. But remember, I'm, like, I'm not a consultant. I'm a practitioner. And I helped create some of this stuff. And so the more I did this work, I'm like, wow, wow really what I think I'm seeing is a whole lot of people out there changing variability more than anything else. So we moved it, we changed it, right? Remember, none of this stuff, nobody owns this stuff. This is open space. This is open thinking, right? So we, we just changed it. We said, actually, and we, we colored, we made it blue just because, you know, like people getting work done, it kind of fits that. Black line is the plan, black and white, write it down. Blue line, you know, sort of blue color, not necessarily a blue color always, but it's the person who does the work. So we started just making it sort of variability around the plan. Sometimes we're overperformed the plan. Sometimes we underperform, but we still had that red line creeping up on us, Gary. And so this past year, I changed it again because I just keep, I just keep learning so much from doing this. It's like, wait a minute, those hazardous things that are out there, they're out there most of the time. They're every every day they're dealing with that stuff. They're stepping around it, stepping under it, dodging it, right, outmaneuvering it. And so we just changed it to this model, which is the red line laces through the black line and the blue line. Somebody saw this one time recently and they said, well, Bob, you show the red line going above the black line. Are you saying that we design hazards in? Uh, and I said, yes, absolutely. I can show you almost any process out there, any system out there, or any tool out there. And there are absolute hazards that have been built in because we can't design everything out of it. 
we, we don't even have the capacity to know all the things that can hurt people, right? So we say this, you know this, Gary, because you spend a lot of time talking about complexity. In complex adaptive systems, you can't predict everything, which means you can't prevent everything. So right. we've got to get better at sort of understanding what is happening, not just what has happened, but what is happening, which is that blue line, right? And the people that do the work, the masters of the blue line, they know that better than anybody else if we can make it safe enough for them to talk to us. Does that help? Yeah, that's really good. I mean, you talk about the frontline workers and they're always adapting and adjusting to the unexpected. Good example is a crew goes out there to work, all of a sudden the weather changes. It starts to rain. Yeah. So how do they adapt? Well, maybe they have to put on protective gear, stuff like that. Maybe they have to put up hazard signs, whatever. But you can see they're following the blue line. That's probably not even in the black line, right? It's all, this is very, and because of the weather is changing, there's your hazard line kind of changing along with it as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah and so also, I really like yeah, this. Yeah. Um, we've done it, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and so I've done uh, so much operational learning that I realized the stuff that, that's out there when a bad day happens is kind of out there all the time. It's just if enough, <laughs> enough of it sort of underperforms at the same time, right? I think Eric Honnego calls it the coupling of variability. Um, that's when bad things happen. So the hazards are there, but also just all that variability is happening. And you know, sometimes a, a bad day happens, you're like, man, that felt like the perfect storm. Cause it was, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of variability that underperformed at the same time and outmaneuvered the, the human. Tom, you got your hand up. Sorry, you, I, I got to watch for that. There's a little thing up in the corner. I missed it. So, uh, go ahead. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about reconciling the tension between a learning organization and a disciplined organization. And I guess it's sort of flagged up, if you like it, coming from GE, you've got this tension between what you're describing and the world. I guess in production and GE, it would be the Six Sigma, you know, that there's yeah. an obsession with reducing variability. And I guess when we're talking about safety, particularly high reliability and major accident hazards, we tend to talk about, you know, follow the procedure, discipline, rigor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very constrained. And it's kind of reducing the people to a machine versus a learning culture, which is where you want people who are inquisitive and experiment, um, those sorts of aspects. Because I think there is a tension between sort of creative, intelligent, interested people can feel very constrained by the discipline. And it, I think leaders who've got a very high EQ kind of sense that difference. So they, you know, I respect your expertise. I encourage you to challenge experiment. And, and as you described, when there's an incident, it's very easy. And I think we're quite good at it. You know, we know how to say, yeah, we've had an incident. This is all about learning and not blaming. But in routine operations, encouraging people to experiment when things are going well, which is what you need to do if you're a, an inquisitive person to avoid becoming bored. So I just wondered whether you could talk a bit about how you manage that tension between learning and experimentation, the kind of the naughty child, the naughty boy in the corner of the room who takes everything apart versus the person who does what they're supposed to do with the right. toys and never breaks anything. It's, it's that tension that I think is quite, I, I think we find very difficult in the safety community. Yeah, yeah. Encourage so, so Tom, learning behaviors. Yeah, brilliant question. So, you know, we, we, so we did, a lot of companies did this. We did lean to get rid of, of waste. We did Sigma to get rid of variability and we didn't get rid of either one of them, right? We made things better, but in some cases, we spent massive amounts of effort to try to get rid of variability that didn't even really help us much in production. Maybe you didn't, but I'm just telling you, my experience, I've lived this stuff for 15 years, right? And so we were realizing that part of complexity is, is this curiosity that you're talking about. And, and if leaders can be more curious and less judgmental, I say this all the time, Tom, after something happens, we're all geniuses, right? I mean, afterwards, right? We're the smartest people in the room afterwards, but we didn't see this about to happen because we, we're trying to get work done. So what we got to do, I think, is, is help our leadership become more curious. If, if people leave with like nothing else from our little time together here today, if we're just more curious, not just like when bad things happen, but how does work actually get done? And Tom, I've done so much operational learning and learning teams when there's been no event. And I find the same brittleness in the system as when we've had a terrible day. Like, like the people that actually do the work, they're managing this variability all the time. So with leaders that don't think we have a problem because we haven't had an incident, we, we suggest, hey, let's study some process that you think is pretty darn good. I did this at a site, Tom, that this, this particular group, they handle really, really dangerous stuff. 
and the, they got project of the year award, like a big trophy. And so they wanted to do a learning team to understand just how good they were. And even the manager who sponsored it, he's brilliant. He said, he said, let's title this thing. Were we lucky or were we good? And he was open to this. He was, he was curious enough. And we unlocked this amazing story of this project and how much they had to manage variability through that whole project and how they actually were really, really good. But Tom, there were two places they identified with one layer of defense and that's it. And that defense dropped out. They wouldn't have got project of the year and I had a really, really bad day. And so that, so and it was, it actually took that manager a moment because he said, I actually didn't know this because why? Well, because he doesn't do the actual work, but his team does. So what we, what we can do with leaders that are struggling with this, I think, and say, hey, if you, if you believe that your processes are all great, let's just pick one and learn. And maybe it will be. And if it is, fantastic. But let me just say, I've done hundreds and I've exposure now to thousands of operational learning teams and this operational learning approach. Yeah, I don't really find things are great. I find that people are amazing and quite adaptive. And they're, they're really a lot of what we think is great systems are incredible humans adapting in the moment, propping that system up. And we're seeing a real problem now because people like you and I, because we're not as young as we used to be, right? We're moving out of the workspace and the new generation, as good as they are, they just don't know this stuff. And so now we're seeing brittleness creeping into a lot of industries where we've lost that, we've lost that prop, right? Those highly adaptive people. And we're, see, we're, getting, we're getting frustrated. We're like, why do these new people know this? Well, they can't know it. They haven't experienced it yet. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the key thing, Tom, is curiosity for leaders. And the moment we think we, well, I like what David Payne said. David Payne was a senior VP from uh, Chevron for safety. And he said, don't tell me how good our metrics are. Show me what should be keeping me up at night. He, he challenged his front lines, his leaders. They said, don't let me sleep good. Make it hard for me to sleep good. Show me the challenges. Show me what should be making me uncomfortable. Show me the brittleness. He said, all green metrics scare me. I don't know any context behind it. I don't know what really is there. So leaders that become more curious, they're not satisfied with all the metrics being in the green. They want to know the context. How are we actually getting there? So I don't know if that helps or not. If we, we could give everybody the, the, the red matrix peel, you know, the reality one from the matrix movie, <laughs> then they would see this clearly. But I think the next best thing is to, to show them what, what does that complexity really look like? Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you're saying because it can even boil down to like the littlest thing that we may overlook. I remember once um, doing a job observation with a line cook and the guy had been doing his job for like 30 years. So like I wasn't there to critique how he was doing his job. So I switched it around. There was like a manual on, on how to how to do the fryer. And so we opened it up and it was clean because he had never read it. Right. Um, and so, and, and, and this individual actually because of a brain injury couldn't read words. So I was reading through and he actually stopped me several times because there was stuff missing in the manual that he just knew to do. I'm doing it. And we were like putting in stuff like shut the fryer off and let it cool for a half an hour. Going back to your brittle comment, a brand new employee who has never done this before, that would never have occurred to them. And that could have been a critical incident. Yeah, correct. Yep, absolutely. Good example, yeah, good example. So Tom, did that help, Tom? What I said, did it help at all? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think there's any easy answers here, but I think it's that we recognize there's the tension because on the one hand, a procedure is to tell you what to do, but on the other hand, exactly as Tamara's described, a procedure is to capture the learning yeah. and experience of people. Yeah. So it's and just recognizing there is that tension. Yeah. You know, and, and don't want and Tom, people playing I, with everything, but you I haven't seen any perfect procedures. Like, I'm not seeing anybody that has perfect procedures or even close to perfect. I work with over 130 companies, some of the biggest companies on planet Earth. Nobody has perfect procedures. Matter of fact, there's a ton of stuff missing from every procedure I look at. And if they try to write it all down, because I've seen that, I've tried to, this doc is 20 something pages and nobody's reading it, right? So procedures to me are, are important that what somebody or somebody's wrote down at some point in time that made sense at that point in time, they do not capture variability very well at all. And I'm a lean, I, mean, I, I support a lot of the lean thinking too, but standard work doesn't capture variability hardly at all. 
And right. so, so, so I think you're right, Tom. Part of it is just that awareness. So then we can say, okay, the procedure is important, but the procedure is not the end all. It may actually have some stuff that's missing. And Tom, I've got some examples where if someone had followed that procedure correctly, they'd be dead today. They, they because of their curiosity. Now, I'm not saying that that in some cases, people that have veered from procedures have also been injured. But I'm saying in this particular one, the guy's curiosity about why something was siphoning off too fast caused him to go check that out. And then the vessel right there that he was next to, it would have, it would have very likely killed him. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of, it's something which we're uncomfortable with saying. And certainly, I mean, I do a lot of serious accident investigations and it's, yep. it's amazing how common that something really bad has been prevented by a really experienced and inquisitive person saying, this just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Correct. Way outside the procedure. So I think it, it's sort of recognizing that ability for people to contribute. But how you do that is very difficult in some in some worlds. You know, yeah. well, like I mean, if saying an airline pilot, oh, okay. I mean, they talk about situational awareness, don't they? In, mm-hmm. in airline pilots, it's just sort of thinking outside the formal procedures, but it's hard to document. I know, and you've, I know you've seen the movie Sully, right? Sullenberger, where when he lost those two engines, if I'm not mistaken, he jumped way out of procedure and flipped on the auxiliary power unit because he knew he needed some power. It was way down in the procedure from where he was. But because he knew, he jumped out of procedure, which helped, I think it gave him some, some uh, avionics and stuff to help him out, right? So he knew he, knew he needed power because he lost both engines. So, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, that was an example. Um, yeah. And I guess it's the tension about how do we teach people to follow the procedure, but do the Sullenberger. <laughs> you know, right. Everyone's so got a I little think... bit of Sullenberger in them. I guess that's the message. So how right, do we right. encourage that? And, and we need that critical th- those critical thinking skills. I mean, we. And I know you probably never said it. I, don't, I hope I haven't ever said this, but I know I've heard it before, where I've heard this said in organizations, well, we just hired them to work, not to think. And that's such a terrible way of, to think about work. I want people to think. I want them to challenge. I want them to question. If a procedure doesn't make sense, let's talk about it. But we also know that, that people that actually get work done, a lot of times they just simply get the work done. And then something bad happens and we come after them, you know, full on. Like, well, you should have done this and you could have done that. And instead of asking them, hey, what was it actually like to do this work? Yeah, okay. I like to bring us back to focus on the book because there's a lot of stuff on the book. I know that you and Andrea, you included a terrific pocket guide on learning teams with yeah. lots of, of how-to information in there. So um, we don't have enough time to go through everything on in there. Uh, but maybe just for this, how would you explain what your learning cycle is that works for you when you have an yeah, opportunity? I will, I, I will, Gary, but I can't pass up Gordon. I love Gordon. Gordon, what's going on, brother? Oh, oh there's Gordon. Okay. Yeah, uh, good, uh, Bob. Really good to hear from you. And a great interview, by the way. This is really awesome. It just kind of fortifies some of the stuff we're doing here, Energy Safety Canada here in the West with our group. So I just did a, a session yesterday in uh, with a group, uh, Oil Sands folks, uh, 45 folks in, uh, in Fort McMurray, Bob, and you're familiar with the area. Yeah. And it was good because we were focusing on all the these components that feed into kind of the new view HOP, you know, safety to the whole nine yards. But one of the things that I stressed on one of my slides was, uh, I just put it in the chat there about flexibility in concert with with competency and judgment when you're when you're looking how that that very that adaptive variability that that where the frontline worker has to make the decisions based on whether you know what's happening, all the things that are feeding into their purview there when they're doing their work. And, and it seemed like it, it resonated with the people in the room. You, you, you have to have flexibility, but you have to restrain that flexibility if you don't have competency, because that's, that's a very dangerous model if you, if you allow people to make decisions beyond what they don't know. So I'll leave it with that. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, I think, I think it's brilliant because, because when you have some of that super, super experienced and stuff, they can actually do things that maybe very few other people could even do. I mean, pilots are a good example of that. Right. And, and then the challenge, Gordon, right, you know, this, right. The challenge is then how do we help people that don't have that competency, but still want to prove they're good? Because that's me. I mean, I want to show you I'm good at this. Uh, how do we get them to actually pump the brakes and uh, and say, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm not quite ready to handle this and I need some help here. So so I think that stop work is one of those things that we talk about but that we don't actually do very often because most people don't stop work. They try to get it done. 
I kind of I say this about staff work: don't get rid of it. But it's more of a, to me, it's more of a supervisor or a manager tool than it is a worker tool. Because most people close to the work, to your point, Gordon, they're going to try to figure it out and get it done if they can. So try to help them. That's why we need supervisors close to the work, right? Because if they're in meetings and on emails and doing reports all day long, they are not there to help pump the brakes when things are going a little bit sideways. So good for you, Gordon. I, I'm glad you're uh, putting that together for folks to be able to think about this. Uh, Gary, you were saying, what's my approach to operational learning? Yeah, because um, we, were, we were talking yeah. about that, about, more about operational learning, but when you have a learning team and you put together, because you've done so many of them, you put them through a learning cycle. I thought it'd be very interesting to tell people what is soak time and that sort of stuff. How does yeah, that yeah. Okay, good. So, so, so our book is about operational learning, which is a very broad sort of topic. And we, we started out actually NGE, Andrea and I both did, creating this uh, learning team approach because we, you know, Todd had shared a few thoughts about it and then we took it and sort of built something out of it that we could use in a practical everyday way to move us away from the traditional investigations. And so we began in both, she was in aviation, I was in appliances, and we both began to, to work to, and together, work through this operational learning piece. And we found some things that really seemed to help. And we learned a lot of stuff along the way from Todd and, and, and Tony Bouchard and Eric, you know, Eric Hott. I mean, we read and study and we, you know, I love the Canavan framework with David Snowden's work. And so, but there's a few things that really sort of seem to make a lot of sense for operational learning, period. Learning teams for sure, but also any kind of operational learning. And the first thing is, is, is that we learn first. And we don't come up with a problem statement until we've learned. And that's backwards from a lot of learn, like, like problem solving methods where they say the first thing you need is uh, you know, a problem statement. We don't think we know a problem statement really until we've taken time to learn. So in a learning team, for example, our first session for me is about an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes long, not very long. Bringing people together in a place that's safe for them, right? Their break room, a team room, someplace that's not intimidating, right? And, and sort of setting that safe place to talk. Having somebody that's a manager kick it off and then they'll kick themselves out and leave. And then just learn. Take an hour and see how much you can learn. And so as a facilitator for operational learning, in any conversation, our job is not to know. Our job is to be curious. And so I just really ask them a ton of questions. Not a, Even if it's event-based, I don't shy away, Gary, from the fact that it was an event. I just say, I know we had an event, whatever it was. And, and I'm not safety, right? I mean, this is for anything. Quality escape, safety, operational upset, you can use it for anything. Um, today, let's not even talk about that unless you really feel a need to. Um, I know you already have the system stable enough to operate, but let's back up a minute. Tell me what it takes to run that combi laughter. Tell me what it takes to, to operate in team three out there, or whatever their, whatever their world is. And so we just learned for about an hour. Now, what I do, Gary, is I, I like whiteboards or flip charts. I just write stuff as we go. I don't type it into a computer because it feels like too private. I don't write it on a notebook, notepad, because it feels like I, I'm, I'm not being transparent enough. So I just write what they're telling me. Now, if somebody says something like, oh, those maintenance guys, those stupid maintenance guys are always late. I don't write that. I'll write something like, is a challenge to get maintenance out here? You know, because I may have maintenance in there tomorrow. And so I, I just learned, I give them some soak time, preferably overnight. And physiologically, your brain just sort of sorts things out. You all know this. You've all woken up the next day after some really important conversation. They, man, I forgot to talk about this, or we should have talked about that. And so we just build soak time in. It's, um, it's just really, really helpful. It's never failed me. It always helps. And then in our second session, our second conversation, I should say, we, we start back in learning mode. I do a review. They always teach me more stuff. I wake up with new points of curiosity. And then once we gain, so for me, learning teams are usually three or four sessions, none of them very long, hour, hour and a half long. And um, sometimes there's more than that, but usually not, because what our goal is, is to learn about the work. So I gain an understanding of the work, come up with some problems we think need to be worked on. You can call them problem statements or areas for improvement, and then get ideas from the team. So the team members' ideas, and I've got a lot of experience with this because I do this all the time. They come up with some of the coolest, in many cases, the most cost-effective. So, Tom, this goes back to my Lean Six Sigma and all that stuff, too. If I get the voice of the worker in there and they get they come up with ideas, a lot of, a lot of times, if not most of the time, their ideas are more practical than mine and, and more doable. 
Like I, I come, sometimes I come up with these big system changes, but sometimes it just needs a, an adjustment or a tweak or something that they see. So that's it. We learn, we gain an understanding. Then there's sort of this, what do we want to work on? And then we, we go out to try to improve some stuff. And we're really big on tri-storming, which is also a lean methodology that a lot of people don't know about it because it's hard to put in a scorecard or a dashboard. But tri-storming is where you take your brainstormed ideas and you go try them out without spending a bunch of money. And Lean really taught us how to do that. So once again, hop, we bring in the good stuff from anywhere we want to. And including things like Lean or Six Sigma or you know, reliability engineering or resilience engineering. So it gives us a free space to bring in the best of the best. So that's kind of the cycle, right? And then we want to keep the learning team engaged and we'll make sure that we actually did something that made it better. Well, great. Aaron, you got your hand up. Yes, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bob, for um, just good chat today. I love the, the conversation. Um, I'm fairly new to Make You Safe and to the safety culture like you. I've, I've spent a lot of time in manufacturing and mm -hmm. have recently joined this team and devouring lots of resources, including your book, which is glad to um, Hope it uh, join, the converse, yeah, join the conversation today. Um, in my past life, we talked a lot. There was an author, uh, a guy by the name of Steven Spear, who wrote a book about um, high velocity organizations. High velocity, yeah. Yep, exactly. And uh, he made the concept about, you know, uh, complex things aren't uh, designed or discovered. Um, and you think about just complex manufacturing lines, you know, somebody tries to sit down and, and design that perfectly. And your comment earlier about designing perfect, safe work environments um, really resonated with that same kind of concept. But we hate to think about discovery, uh, you know, when it comes to safety. And then uh, another conversation, another, uh, I believe I heard it from Todd Conklin. Um, I think he tells a story about uh, hurdlers and their goal is to get over the hurdle just above the line, right? And so we think about black line, blue line, red line, and how do you do safety just enough? And then what that makes me really uncomfortable when you think about what is risk, right? Risk is to get us the farthest away from that red line. And so we tend to over-engineer things and we're back to the, the tension conversation that we had earlier about how do you do this in this space when you're thinking about um, thinking, uh, as you mentioned the story about um, the power or knowing that uh, something wasn't right and so they get out of the way, that comes into just over the line just enough, but with this concept of HOP um, and really being more thoughtful about what we're doing instead of just procedural you know, literal and uh, legalistic about it. I don't know. Just, that's a combination of things that I've been struggling with and try to how to balance those pieces. I'd just love to hear your comments in, in, in that space. Well, yeah. So first of all, you're, you're, you're thinking like we're thinking, right? I mean, it, it is a, it is a balance and, and we don't, I don't think it has a great answer. I just think we're getting better at it. I think we're getting better at sort of learning. I don't think we've changed work much yet. I mean, I haven't seen it. Um, I think that we're getting better at understanding how work gets done, which is important. That's a, that's a first step, like the complexity of the work. But I don't think that we've changed work much yet at all in most organizations. Some cases, it's really hard to change because it was systems that have been in place for decades in some cases, right? It's not going to be easy to change it. So it, I think it's going to be a struggle for a while. And, and what's, what's going to be hard is that we're going to have leaders and managers are going to say, hey, well, we've been doing this safety two thing or safety differently. We, you know, we call it a hop. Um, how come things aren't better? Like, like they expect a magic pill or some silver bullet. Like, well, we, we have to change work. We have to change the way, like we, we don't have a lot of mitigation in most work. You think about a car, a car has a lot of prevention and mitigation, right? Systems to keep you from running into stuff, but then also cars are designed to run into stuff. I mean, they're, they're crumple zones, airbag deployments, survivable space, right? Just being honest, I don't really see a lot of survivable space with a whole lot of the stuff we build at work. We have a whole bunch of stuff we better, we we're trying to prevent, right? So if you can just prevent everything, but remember we can't prevent everything because it's complexity. So I think it's, it's gonna be a tug of war. It's gonna be a struggle. I don't think anybody has a clear answer. I just think we're getting better at learning, which is encouraging to me because I know this, we did not get better by laying down the law and punishing people. We drove really important conversations underground and we, we actually lost some really good people. Aaron, I was at a site where a, a very seasoned maintenance guy had missed a step in like a 
20 page lockout because they had zero tolerance, they fired him. That's a, that's millions of dollars walking out the door and tons of experience, walking, but they had zero tolerance. So they had no choice but to follow through and fire him. So we got to, we got to rethink that stuff. That's not helpful. Rose has got to help. Helps or not, Aaron. It's a mess. Yeah. Rosa, uh, Rosa and then Tom. Rosa. My, my little, my little orange hand isn't working. So well, I, I didn't want the blood to run out of your hand, right? Tom <laughs> has to run again. He can hold it up a lot longer. What, what do you think, yeah. Rosa? Um, I was just wondering um, when you say things haven't changed, why haven't things gotten better? Doesn't that uh, depend on uh, how what you're measuring or what you consider getting better? Because it seems to me that one of the things that HOP does is, is it changes the uh, the atmosphere, the psychological safety, the way people are communicating, and and to me, it's very hard to measure. <laughs> Uh, those things and the benefit that that's producing. So could you talk to that a little bit? Because because I think measure, uh, metrics are so, uh, you know, they're holding everybody hostage. Yeah, yeah. And Rosa, we all sort of bought into it, right? What gets measured gets improved. And, you know, if the metrics look good, we must be good. And right. But um, I, I don't know. I think that metrics are kind of they can be an obsession. We can sort of fixate on them. I know you probably read the book by Moeller, uh, The Tyranny of Metrics. That book is so powerful. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, and he talks about not, not that we don't need metrics, but we need to understand what's really going on. And Rosa, to your point, like some people have said to me, so if we do this hop stuff, will our injury rates go down? I'm like, probably not. They're probably going to go up for a bit. Ours did because people were started bringing stuff forward that they had been hiding. People were not bringing stuff forward because we used to, I know you probably don't do this, but we used to reward for not getting injured. You would get a payout, financial payout, if you didn't have injuries. A lot of companies have some version of that. And so we began to change even that because we realized we were incentivizing people to not report. So then the numbers went up. I can tell you in about a two-year period of doing hop at my site, our injury rates went up, but our severity rates dropped and our workers' comp was the lowest we had ever seen it, Rosa, because we were actually learning the stuff to work on. But you're brilliant in saying, what are we measuring? And not necessarily does, it's not bad that that number went up. It actually shows that people are bringing stuff forward. So, but you're right in saying that, how do we how do we deal with that? Because if right now my, my performance payout is that the injury rate has to be 25% less than it was last year, well, now you just ate into my money as opposed to saying, wait, why are these rates going up? Well, because we're really actually hearing from people. They're bringing stuff forward. They're not going home injured. And we're actually getting a better understanding of what we need to work on. So yeah, I'm not opposed to metrics, but boy, we could talk, man, we could talk all day about metrics. Um, and metrics without context, I truly believe are dangerous and in some cases deadly. So yeah. I'm, I'm all about what is the context behind the metric? I'm like David Payne with Chevron It's like, it doesn't matter how good they are. I want to know what the real deal is. How do we get there? I saw a site that had the best production day that ever had, and they nearly blew up one of their main units getting there. But that wasn't talked about. It was just the numbers looked great. So yeah, we got to be able to talk about the real deal. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just checking the clock here. Like we've spent um, 45 minutes already. It's amazing how time flies. I just want to briefly mention that, and Aaron, you'll know that you got the book. Part two is really a whole section on Bob's and Andrea's practical approach to operational learning. There's over 20 great hints and tips, and I was going to ask Bob to talk about a few, but I'm just going to pass them that and suggest that why don't you just buy the book, folks, and then you can <laughs> read them for yourself. And then I'm sure, Bob, if you if they email you or kind of contact you, you can go much deeper into that. Yeah. I'm interested, though, in your part three, because it's entitled Opportunities for Operational Learning. Right. And, I, and I think most of us are aware that there's been some skepticism, skepticism about the new view of human error because there doesn't seem to be a lot of published, peer-reviewed empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. And I know there's some truth to that, but I sense this because practitioners, we're shifting to collecting a different type of data, narrative data. We're telling stories about work has done. And that's really where all the evidence has been compiled and it's getting turned into improvements here. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, so narrative storytelling is brilliant. I think it's a way that, so we, I think we can change a lot of stuff when we tell better stories. And we have examples of how this actually works. I don't know, it's interesting to me, 
we're, we're seeing this HOP sort of thinking really kind of moving into almost all aspects of workplaces now. We're seeing it in quality. We're seeing it in operational, just operational upsets and challenges. We're even seeing it in like management of change, which I'm an old design guy. I love the fact that we're now designing stuff using the hop approach, which is the voice of those who actually know about human error and know about the mistakes they've made and know about the systems they've had to deal with, helping us design better processes and equipment. So I don't know. I think I think it's it's just we're just kind of breaking into this where all this can go. But we're seeing more and more organizations just going way beyond safety. And I don't mean that to sound bad. I mean, safety is super important. But a lot of times I think safety is an outcome from our, our sort of operational struggles. So we can get in there and understand those struggles better and get some ideas from the folks on how to make it better. Um, I will. I think we'll help with safety, quality, even productivity. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Um, I know one thing that you've done, and again, this goes back where you said that you just have a lot of stories and thank God for Randy to kind of like put them together in a book that makes sense. And in one part, I just, I counted over 11 really mind-blowing stories that you've shared. Um, how, how about if you give a taste what's in the guide? Do you have a favorite story that like you like to tell? I mean, You've got one about who buried Bill, which sounds really cool, or starting small and try storming, um, yeah. telling leaders what you think they want to hear. Um, so, well, if you were to pick a favorite, what would you pick? Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't have a favorite because they're all just stories that have happened. I've got hundreds of them now because of all the learning teams. We picked a few that we thought would sort of, matter of fact, it's funny because I told you I couldn't, this book would not have happened without Andrea. And she was like drawing all this together. At one point she said, Bob, you've sent me that story now three times. Stop rewriting it. I'm like, oh, sorry. Like I was just literally writing stories. I'm like, hey, I should tell her about this one. And uh, so I wrote, which I said, just pick the one that you like the best. But um, the the story, like a quick example, the one who buried Bill uh, is about some road workers and the fact that they were, they were doing some work and they messed up and wasn't short up good enough. Anyway, it partially buried this guy. Didn't he survived? It was not like a fatality, but they were ready to fire somebody. And it was actually a city, like a little province, a little city group that that brought me in because of somebody that I worked with who was a part of the, um, as a, uh, I don't know, a commissioner or something, and as well. And he said, "Man, don't don't fire those guys. Let's actually try to learn." And so as we started learning about what they were dealing with, it's, it's all about context, right, Gary? So it's a story of, of the road was washed out. They were, they were behind schedule and their people really upset because they couldn't get to their, the, you know, their, into their neighborhood easily. And, and the weather was bad and the ground was marshy. Anyway, all this stuff, you start looking at this and they were managing all of that. And it ended up with a bad outcome, but you're looking at it and thinking, wow, these guys don't need to be punished. These guys are actually trying to manage all that variability. What was interesting about that one is that when I was there talking to that leadership team, I shared another story of where someone had brought up a, a point in a learning team where they we had a fire on a piece of equipment and they brought up that they'd had two fires on their shift, but they'd never told anybody. And I said, thank you for telling me that. Teach me about your fires. And that the HR from that city commission, that city group, when I told that story in this, in the, dealing with this who buried Bill, you know, because I did some leadership training there, she said, wait a minute, are you telling me you didn't punish that guy because he had two fires and never told anybody? She said, we have mandated reporting and I have an open door policy. I said, both of those are nice, except there's no such thing as mandated reporting. That's a made up term, right? All, all reporting is voluntary. And if we don't have an environment where people will bring stuff forward, and she said, well, I have an open door policy. I said, yeah, but, you know, road workers aren't really known for going to HR and saying, can I complain because somebody threw a beer bottle at me as they drove by, right? They're not known for that. What are they known for doing? Getting work done. Getting work. I mean, we had a power outage here yesterday and watch those utility guys right down my road here. The storm had just let up. It was still thundering off in the distance. And those guys were bringing, it took them four hours of bringing power back on. And so when you really look at the work that these guys did, nobody needed to be punished. It doesn't mean we can't make things better. Maybe they need some good shoring equipment or whatever with the uh, when they're digging, but punishing them fixed absolute, would fix absolutely nothing. So the books has just got a lot of examples of where you can see how we could have like gone the old way, but we didn't. 
and you can see a different outcome. That's hard to measure to your point and to Rose's point. It's hard. You can't like put a number on that and say we're 18% better. I don't know how to do that, but I do know how to tell the stories. Yeah. And it goes back story, to your book. Yeah. Go ahead. It goes back to your book, Rosa, when you talked about it all, we have to create that space for trust, right? And build those relationships. So real nice connection with uh, with your book as well. Nice. Yeah. yeah, trust is hard. Trust is hard, right? I mean, because there's, it, it, so we say in the hop space all the time, at least let's build an environment where people can be a little more honest. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. tell you the truth without fear of retribution. Yeah. One thing nice about complexity science, as we talk about it, is this whole idea of feedback and going viral. So if you build a small, you know, condition of trust and people see it and they start talking to each other, somebody told somebody told somebody, then that trust actually exponentially grows on its own. So in some cases, it doesn't have to be top down. It can right. grow anywhere and this kind of spread. Yep. Well, and, and that's the cool thing about all this is that this is not like the hop initiative is not a, it's not a top down initiative. We need people on board through the whole organization. There are lots of organizations where there's been like a safety guy that learned about it and brought it in and tried it out at his site and got his plant manager on board and it sort of grew up and out from there. There are other sites where uh, some corporate executive at some conference somewhere heard about it. And so it actually came to uh, Ford Motor Company, United Auto Workers actually brought it in and then showed it. And then they, through their joint committee, uh, Sean Coglin and his team works with or have worked with the uh, board leadership to bring it together. It's really cool how this is happening. There's not one way to do it. There's lots of ways to bring this forward. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think an important part of your book also is you do look at the downside and you briefly talk about the few obstacles about operational learning. So I, I appreciate you humbly sharing some of the blunders and mistakes to avoid. What's on your list? Well, so I, mean, I think anybody in here that's done any of this can probably give a, even a, a bigger, better list than I would have. But the things, there's lots of things that can get in our way. One, one of them is sort of this hindsight bias, where after something happens, we all sort of know what should have happened. So you hear somebody say they should have, they could have, why didn't they? Well, those are all hindsight bias counterfactuals. So that's not where it really happened. So fighting against hindsight bias is a tough one. Uh, some of the old school leadership styles, right? I'm large and in charge, my way or the highway. Those sort of places can't really do this with a leader that wants to drop the hammer on somebody that messes up, right? So punishment, punishment gets in the way of operational learning, for sure. Um, group think, a whole bunch of us think a certain way, therefore it must be so. And Matt Torty's on here too, he knows this. We, as I was going, Matt, we would, uh, we, we like to hear from people that actually see things differently, right? Uh, I think human performance calls it the differing professional opinion. We value that at HOP. It's like, we need people that see things differently than me because they can help me with my own biases. So there's a lot of different biases we try to work our way through. Yeah, I, there's a, there's a, but there's all those are things we can work through. Like I can tell you this, I've been doing this for almost 10 years and uh, my wife of 41 years has told me, she said, Bob, I see you, you seek to understand more than you used to. I mean, I have two engineering degrees, so clearly I think I know something, right? It's I've always had an answer. And she said, you're getting better at actually listening. Now, Rosa, she hasn't said, I understand. She hasn't said, Bob, you understand me. So I don't understand her maybe yet, but I'm working on it, okay? But she did say that she sees improvements with how I even seek to understand with my kids. Um, so I think this way of thinking starts to, well, Andy, my work partner, she has a, uh, a vlog now, uh, or a podcast, sorry. And she talks about sort of integrating this stuff into work, but also into everyday life. And um, if you haven't seen, so we give all of our uh, training material away. Um, we have um, we have a hophub.org is our website. And you mm -hmm. can go there and you can find access to uh, Todd Conklin's podcast. I do some video blogs. Uh, Andy is doing now these podcasts, but they're different than Todd's. Todd is so cool because Todd's very ins inspirational. He inspired me to do this operational learning stuff because he saw it and saw how it was needed. And he's inspired Andy to, to do a, a different sort of podcast where she's not doing a lot of interviewing. She's sharing some stuff and then sort of giving you some homework to think about, hey, how can you sort of try this out in your own place or in your own personal life? And so all that stuff is right there under resources on hophub.org. Um, as long as, as well as a community, there's a, a community that, that uh, Andy 
and uh, and Matt, who's now joined our team, put together. It's called hopcommunity.org, open space. Uh, anybody can be a part of it. Some of you are a part of it. Uh, I'm not on it much because I'm not very good at social media stuff, but it's a it's a place to share thoughts and ideas and questions. And then here's the cool thing is, it's like just okay, with our book, Gary, we never advertised. We just said, let's just let people know it's available one time on LinkedIn. That was it. And we just said, let word of mouth carry it forward. And so that's what we got. <laughs> Yep. And so I appreciate yeah, a lot of, this. Got, uh, got picked ahead, up Matt. some good info from there. Yeah, picked up some good info from there, Bob. From that cool. Just that from social that. group, just sharing things yeah. with each other and asking questions. And it's just growing, right? Go ahead, Matt. What you can say. Yeah, yeah. One key thing you said there too about going back to um implementing this in your everyday life is your humble inquiry, being yeah, being mm -hmm. curious, not judgmental. Yep, being teachable, right? Yeah. Yep. And and so yeah, what's cool too about the community, Matt, is that there's only two rules. You can't sell stuff on it and you have to be nice, right? So <laughs> yes, that's, we don't that's we don't want any of that drama and that trolling and all that garbage, right? We just want people that are in this space to join in and share thoughts and questions and comments. And so yeah, I knew you were on it. And um I, I don't even know how many people's on it now. It's, it just keeps growing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, uh, that's well, the Gary, sort of that's community one. Yeah, I mean, and as it grows, it, it, and you know, again, it, grow, it goes viral. And, you know, we don't have to have this major initiative, but we're going to do this. It just just grows. And we yeah. know the paradigms have shifted, and we are accepting this as the new normal. And that's, I think, where we want to go on this one. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're almost at the top of the hour. Has anybody got their hands up, want to share something before I ask the big three takeaway question? Anybody? No? No? Okay, so let me do that. I, I know that uh, what we've discovered over time after doing this, what, over two years now tomorrow, and Rosa, what's emerged for us is that most of the folks that are on here are what we call chefs, not recipe followers. If you read Bob's book, this is a book for chefs. And I think, Bob, you already said here, we don't say do this to this, step by step by step. It's variable. And you'll find different companies will do different things here. So, Bob, what three takeaways would you like to leave our chefs? Okay, so I can't help myself. Sorry, Gary. Uh, we got two minutes left. From our conversation today, anybody that's willing to share, what are one or two or maybe three takeaways that you have? Because I'm way more curious, did any of this help at all? than I am about what I can tell you because I think you're smarter than me. So anybody that would be willing to share, what did what, if anything, did you take away from today that you're like, huh, that might just help a little bit because I'll I'll be able to use that as I move forward as I do this training and, and coaching and sharing. So anybody want to share, either raise your hand and shout it out or put it in the chat. I opened up yeah. chat. I forgot about that. So yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll go. The, I think the go simplest ahead. one the the simplest one that you mentioned earlier about we just don't know how to predict everything you know Correct. it's it's something that we understand but when you put it in that kind of succinct phrase i mean that's a mantra that should be the top of everyone's you know learning list we don't know how to predict everything and then how do you react from there fabulous yeah. takeaway good and i think we also call it a failure of imagination like we can't even imagine all the ways that things can go wrong right but you know what I find interesting too, Aaron, is the people that are closer to the work, they have a better, they're better dialed in on it than I am. Yep. Uh, we got one here from uh, Matt, metrics without context are dangerous. Good, I love it. Yep. So there's a couple, anybody else? We get one, oh, Rosa's got one. Yeah, I, I just like your presence, uh, that you're very comfortable not having the answers. I, I think that, it inspires a lot of trust uh, and makes you more credible. Thank you, Rosie. And I think we'll figure out more stuff if we don't think we already know, right? Yeah. Right? And, and Todd, so we, Todd and I, Todd and I were presenting somewhere one time and, and uh, Todd said, uh, Bob's really good at operational learning because he doesn't seem to know very much. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> right? And he was just messing with me because if you know Todd, he likes to pick. But yeah, I think, I think you're right though. I think it helps to, to just say, you know what? I guess I probably don't know, but man, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the big for, big one for me is not having to say there, let's identify the problem. I think yeah. that is, let's learn first. Yeah, and yeah. The problem will probably emerge.
from the conversations we have about learning. 100% agree with you, Gary. Matter of fact, you can even take the lean seven steps to problem solving. The first one is uh, to find your problem. Just make it eight steps. The first one is learn. Yeah. And in lean, we said go to the Gimba, but we weren't really good at like deep operational learning. I mean, maybe you were, I wasn't. But you can just take that seven step, make it eight steps. And the first one is sort of deep operational learning and then define the problem. I think you're right, Gary. I think it makes it easier. Yes. Like, I don't have to work as hard. It's there. Yeah. Well, there, there we go. There was four, Gary. We got four out of that one. Way to go. Awesome. <laughs> well, we are at the top of the hour. And uh, I'm sure we could have gone on for a lot more time. And maybe um, Bob will bring you back and maybe with Andy as well. And oh, you love her. Yeah. You, some of you know her. She's the best. She is the right. smartest. Okay, so younger, that's when you write your next book. We'll bring Andy on. <laughs> What's that? Oh, great. Okay. Back to you tomorrow. Close things off. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. And thank you, Bob. This is an amazing conversation. Really has gotten a lot of us uh, thinking. And I think there's a good podcast in there too, Bob. So I might uh, connect with you because you've got me thinking. And for the members who joined us today, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Because without you, we wouldn't even be doing this. Well, so, tomorrow, thank you, I'm, honored. I'm, I'm honored that folks came on to talk about the book. Thank you for being curious about it. So thanks for having me. No, thank you, Bob. Mm -hmm. Pleasure's mine. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next month. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.